Last Sunday, we affirmed that we are a church whose mission is to make disciples who make a difference. And we said that we believe that making disciples is the most important thing we can possibly do. Of all the things we might do, that is the most important. And that we believe that, furthermore, those who become disciples should make a difference. So the question today is what sort of difference should we make? How do we know if we are making a difference? How do we measure it? How do we know? And someone has pointed out to uh, the church that we often measure input rather than output. We judge the success of a church and of its programs and of its ministries by how many of us show up for it rather than by how many of us are changed by it and how many of those in our community are affected by it. How do we measure output? How do we measure the results to know that we are making a difference. Well, of course, we look to Christ, who is our Lord. And this morning, we encounter Jesus in the synagogue. One of the commentaries I read this week in preparation for this sermon asked the question, why did Jesus start in the synagogue? And, and the commentary said, quite simply, Jesus had to start somewhere, and this was as good a place as any. But I really think that the synagogue, the very fact that it existed, was in alignment with how Jesus understood his mission. You understand, of course, that the Hebrew people had not always had synagogues. There was a a period in their life where they had the temple, and it was thought that God was primarily present in the temple. And if one wanted to go to God, one needed to go to temple. And pilgrimage to temple remained an important part of Hebrew life, You'll remember that Jesus and his family made pilgrimage to the temple. But the very fact that there was a synagogue in these scattered communities was evidence of the fact that the Hebrew people had come to understand that God was not limited to one place, but that God was present wherever there were people present, wherever there was worship, wherever there was teaching, wherever there was discipleship. And this was certainly in keeping with who Jesus was as the Word made flesh come into the world to dwell among us. God comes to us. We don't go to God. If we are to be people in whose life a difference is made, then certainly God must come to where we are. God must meet us in the places where we live and work, where we grow up, where we grow old, where we live and get married and have children, and where we die. It is in the context of our own circumstances that spirituality is formed. We are formed in context, the context being wherever we are. And if we are to make a difference in the lives of our community and the members of our community, if we are to make a difference that matters, that lasts, then we cannot wait for folks to come to us. We must go to them. We must meet them where they are, in the places where they live and die and struggle and pray. Jesus goes into the synagogue and he teaches. And this, of course, is very much in keeping with the tradition of the synagogue to welcome a visiting teacher. And by teaching, Jesus enters into the stream of their spiritual formation. 
Now, this is something of a paradox, of course, because Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the one who created the stream of their spiritual formation. And yet, in the incarnation, the the Almighty God, the one who is responsible for it all, comes into the specific situation in which people find themselves. Again, ministry is incarnate, incarnational. It is uh, contextual. Jesus teaches, and the people are immediately amazed that he teaches as one who has an authority unlike anything they've seen or heard from their leaders. And Mark contrasts the teaching of Jesus with that teaching of the scribes. The scribes, of course, are the professionals. They are the trained biblical scholars. Jesus has no such training so far as we know. But there is another difference between Jesus and the scribes. The, the scribes are, are advancing, promoting a protective spirituality. They are offering a way to play it safe and make sure you don't do anything to violate God's ways, God's laws. For the scribes, nothing is more important than the Holy Scripture. Nothing is more important than the law of God. And they're so concerned that people will break the law either intentionally or inadvertently that they have surrounded the law with all sorts of commentary, with all sorts of uh, practical applications, uh, ways of making sure that you are in alignment with what the law, that the people are in alignment with what the law teaches. And theirs is a prescriptive spirituality. It is a spirituality with lists of do's and don'ts. If you do this, God will be pleased with you. If you don't do this, God will be pleased with you. It is a way of assuring that one is right with God. It is protective. It is prescriptive. Jesus, on the other hand, does not come to protect the Scripture. He comes to fulfill the Scripture. He comes to bring Scripture to its ultimate purpose. And that purpose, of course, is to bring people into the presence of God. Jesus comes not as one who is seeking to prescribe something, a list of do's and don'ts, but rather to bring people into a living encounter with God in which they will know God's will and do God's will with a purity of motive, with a clarity of understanding. He seeks to bring the Scripture to its final application, not in terms of some kind of prescriptive spirituality, but in terms of a living encounter with God. The scribes exist, they live, they teach at the end of a long line of tradition. Jesus, on the other hand, is the living Word of God. He is the one who gave the prophets the words to speak. He is the one who inspired the law. And he speaks with such clarity and such authority that the people are amazed. We are always tempted as a congregation and really as individuals 
to yearn for someone to tell us what to do and what not to do. Give us a list, give us a book, give us a series of sermons, give us something that, will, that, we, can, that we can latch on to so that we know we should do this or we shouldn't do that. And really, this is a sort of a popular approach to religion nowadays. There are all kinds of books being written, all kinds of uh, lectures given, all sorts of uh, uh, programs on, on the media uh, for spiritual formation. The, the problem with that, it's well intended, but the problem with it is that it lacks the power of a more direct encounter with God. And our ministry, our goal, our purpose should be to come into God's presence or to be awakened to the fact that God is in our presence presence, that God is already with us, and that God is already in the community and with the people we're seeking to help. We need more than a prescriptive spirituality. We need a living encounter. Well, Jesus is that encounter, and he turns the synagogue outward. And as he does that, a man possessed with an unclean spirit shows up. A man with a deep problem. Someone has said that these who are possessed, these spirits that haunt them and that torment them, are in so many ways an internalizing of all of the brutality, of all of the violence, of all of the injustice and fear that is present in the world. That these spirits, whatever they are, mirror the world that is external. And these who are possessed take into themselves the trauma, the woundedness, the chaos, the disintegration of the world around them. It is as if the whole world is fighting within them. And it is more than they can bear. Who knows what sort of trauma this man might have encountered? Who knows what he has suffered that has caused him to become as he is? There is a showdown, of course. The demon brings destruction, death, disintegration. Jesus brings healing. He brings wholeness. He is love. He is power. He is life. And this is a raw encounter between the forces of death and the force of life. And Mark would have us see this as a sign that something new is happening. That the powers that have so long controlled the world are coming to an end. This is a sign of the messianic reign. This is a sign of, of the new age of the coming of the kingdom of God. This is a difference that is made that points to the difference that will be made in the days to come. And Jesus sets this man free. Jesus sets him free because he is a beloved child of God. 
Because he is a man in whom the image of God still exists. He is a child of God. And Jesus sets him free so that he can become the very one that God has made him to be. The unclean spirit resists, of course. It does all it can to protest. And yet, divine love prevails. The cure isn't easy. The demons do what the demons can do. They shriek, they convulse. But in the end, they are defeated. And this man goes home healed and whole. And this is exactly what he needs. And this is the kind of difference we would like to make, isn't it? We're not content to tinker around on the fringes of broken systems. We're not content to give people a prescription for spirituality and send them off and and tell them, try this and see if it helps. The kind of difference we would make is the kind of difference that changes life fundamentally that brings a healing that is deep and comprehensive and permanent. More than anything else, the difference that we would make is to help people encounter Jesus who is able then to enable them to become the very ones God has made them to be. Here's a rambling story. I hope you can follow it. It will come back, I promise. Just stay with me. Go first to Macon County, Alabama. The county seat of Macon County is Tuskegee, Alabama. You've heard of Tuskegee Institute, Tuskegee University, the Tuskegee Airmen, perhaps. Tuskegee University is a premier historically black college. Someone has called it the Harvard of black colleges. Many esteemed professors and students have been at Tuskegee. And yet the city of Tuskegee is a city that has a sad and violent history. In the days of the civil rights movement, the city of Tuskegee was striving mightily for a positive outcome. There were people in the university or in the Tuskegee Institute, as it was known then, people in the college and leaders in the community who were seeking to come together and seeking to find peace, to find reconciliation, and to come together. At the same time that these people of goodwill were working toward some way forward, there were voices of dissension, particularly in the white community, 
there were those racists who did not want to see this happen. And they were applying all the pressure they could. And the breaking point came as the city was about to integrate their public school for the first time. Plans had been made for it to be done peacefully and orderly. And leaders on, in both the black community and white community were happy with this. They were, they, they were confident of it. And then the governor of Alabama, George Wallace, stepped in. And on the day that the school was to be integrated, George Wallace sent the National Guard and sent the sheriffs from Dallas County and surrounded the school and prevented its opening. And no students went to school by action of the governor. And then everything fell apart and people lost hope. And the racists in the community really began to prevail. And for the next few decades, there was an erosion of trust. There was hostility. And the Tuskegee Methodist Church was caught right in the middle of all that. The Tuskegee Church had been there for many years. It was a church that had been built before the Civil War. Stained glass windows in that church were imported from Europe. They had a wonderful pipe organ, and they were a cultured congregation, the kind of people who love to hear Bach on the pipe organ. But they could not decide what to do about their black neighbors. And ultimately, the racist voices within the congregation had their way. And there were people posted at the entrances of the church to prevent black neighbors from entering. And through the years, that church declined along with the city. Until a few years ago, there were only a handful of people left. The church building for many years had a, had a tree growing out of its... out of its... Um, steeple and the people simply just gave up and died off now go with me to Auburn Alabama and a cause that you were supporting then that you still support when you pay your conference apportionments you support Wesley foundations across our conference at the universities and colleges in our conference and one of those is the Auburn University Wesley Foundation in those days, there was a student there from Dauphin Way. There was more than one student, but one in particular, Brian Miller, was a student at Auburn University, was a part of the Wesley Foundation. Brian eventually became a preacher. He's one of our preachers, preaches, pastors of a church at Aldersgate, Montgomery, doing a fine job, great preacher. But this story is not about Brian. It is about one of his friends, Lisa Pierce. Lisa Pierce was a young woman who in 1996 was about to graduate from Auburn University. She'd been in the Wesley Foundation. She'd gone away on mission trips. She had seen programs that helped people who were living in rural poverty. She'd been to Redbird Mission. She'd been to Appalachian Service Project. And she was convinced that we needed a program like that in Alabama for our rural poor. 
Now go to Sumter County in Livingston. I told you this goes all over the place. Sumter County, Livingston, Alabama. I was a pastor at Livingston Church. My wife was the Wesley Foundation at the University of West Alabama. We were about to be moved to Auburn to take another appointment. And there was a vacancy in the Wesley Foundation. And David Goosby, who was the, the um, director of the Auburn Wesley Foundation, told Lisa Pierce, you should go to, to Livingston and you should start your dream in Livingston. That's a good place to do it. Lisa became convinced that she could do it. Nell convinced the board of directors of the Wesley Foundation to hire this young woman who had just graduated from college. Uh, they didn't think she was old enough to do it, but they did it. They, they, they agreed to do it. She came to Livingston and she started something called Alabama Rural Ministries. It's a home repair ministry. It's a, it's a, a ministry where we have uh, camps for children in the summer. She started it in Sumter County. Eventually, it became a part of Macon County. She had a dream to, to have a similar ministry in Macon County. Well, meanwhile, there was a district superintendent, Rob, Ron Ball, who had a, a discernment team like the discernment team that I want to create for our church. And he was trying to do this kind of discernment work for the district. And, and, and Ron became convinced and, and his team became convinced that the First Methodist Church of Tuskegee could be a mission center. And the First Methodist Church of Tuskegee became convinced that it could be a mission center. There was a handful of courageous people who were still there, and, and these folks had long since moved beyond their racism. They were wanting to embrace their community, some really terrific leaders there, and they became convinced that they could have a mission center. Lisa Pierce became convinced of that. During all of this time, Sheila Bates was the um, Wesley Foundation director at Tuskegee. You see how all this fits together. Ultimately, Alabama Rural Ministries became housed in Tuskegee at First Methodist Church. They did a lot of work on the facilities, bringing in volunteers from all over the country, mission teams during the summer. And now finally, here's where I was going with all of that. I was there yesterday at First Methodist Church, Tuskegee. I was there because our confirmation class was there. And the room we were working in, we were actually working at the church, helping to get things ready for teams that will come this summer. And there was in the room where we were working an old upright piano. And nobody there thought that it would play, that it could be played. In fact, nobody had ever heard it played, I don't think. It was just over in the corner. And at a moment when she was taking a break, Mara MacPhail went over and lifted the cover on that piano and began to play. And everyone stopped. And we were amazed. And the folks who worked there regularly, the arm team said, we didn't know that would that it could be played. And she was playing the kind of music that those cultured folks who, like Bach on the pipe organ, would have appreciated. And I thought to myself, what a lovely witness. Racism 
caused a lot of shrieking in Tuskegee, Alabama. Racism led to many convulsions in Tuskegee, Alabama. And yesterday, Mara bore witness to the grace of God. I don't think she even knew she was doing it. That is the kind of difference we want to make. That is the kind of difference we can make. And you see how all of these different people and all of these different movements and all of these different times fed into that moment yesterday. It was a moment that could not have happened except for all of these things that were a part of it. And so we don't do this by ourselves. We don't do this apart from one another. And grace abounds. And that is the difference we want to make. It is the kind of difference we can make. Deep change that bears witness to the reconciliation, the healing, the wholeness of God's kingdom. I pray that we will be about nothing less. It is God's will, I believe, and I pray that we may be faithful. Amen.